Proverbs 4. We're looking at this text because it specifically describes how the law applies to our various body parts, and especially the part of parts, the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to keep your law. That's why we are trying to understand it rightly. Understand it as your son understood it and preached it. To understand it as your apostles understood it and taught it. So give us the grace to understand your law rightly, to know what you have to say to us, and then not only to know it, but to do it. We pray these things to you, the Lord of the whole law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by one count, the federal government has issued at least 1.1 million regulations. There are various data out there on how many pages have been added to the Federal Register of officially promulgated regulations each year and so on. But God Almighty takes a different approach. He doesn't endlessly multiply rules. He has broken it down to a single half page. The Ten Commandments, they fit on a four-by-six card, and they cover every last possible instance of human action and human behavior. If you're considering doing something, that something falls under one or other of the Ten Commandments. How is that possible? when not everything you can consider doing falls under one or other of the 1.1 million federal regulations? And the answer is that the commandments contain much in little. They are short, they are small, but they are perfect. As it says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. And in fact, they perfectly cover the whole person, the whole situation or the whole ethical field, as well as the whole character of God. The commandments are perfect in their coverage, not just of us, but also of the world around us and of the God from whom they come. They come from the triune God. They reflect and require his perfections in human life and in human society. So we start by looking at how the commandments command the whole person or the rigor of the law. And that rigor is described here in Proverbs 4. Keep your heart with all diligence. The first and primary thing that the commandments command is the heart. What is the heart? Obviously, physically speaking, it's the organ that pumps the blood and keeps you alive. Psychologically speaking, it's the equivalent of the mind and the soul, and our psychology that we use today. It is 
the center of your being, the real you, the motivator, the thing from which life comes. As Solomon says, from it flow the springs of life. Life starts in the heart and moves out from there. The heart is the center of thinking. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The center of decision-making, the center of personality. It sums up who you are and what does Solomon say? Above all guarding, guard your heart. Why do you have to watch your heart? This doesn't mean something like we can think of the emotional purity movement. Keep yourself from falling in love with a bad person. No. Solomon is saying your heart should be in jail. You should have it behind bars and you should watch it like a hawk because it wants to come out of that jail and kill people. That's why you guard your heart. It is a prisoner. It is an evil animal on a chain. And you are the jailer keeping it from getting out and wreaking havoc. Above all guarding, watch your heart. No one's going to be called, told, guard this rock. The rock just sits there. The rock is not going to get out and do something wrong. But the heart needs guarding. That's not guarding from, protecting from harm. It's guarding against, stopping it from going and doing wrong things. So the commandments, as we say, command the heart. The commandments tell the heart, this is what to do. When you guard your heart, you are stopping your heart from doing anything the commandments tell it not to do. And if you prevent your heart from doing that, then you've protected your whole life. You've guarded your whole life against the evil actions of the heart. So the commandments, in other words, are directed first and foremost to the heart. They are not primarily external, but they are primarily internal. They're statements, that is, about what you love as well as about what you do. Don't let your heart love evil. And how do you show that? Well, by obeying the commandments with your body. The commandments do command the body. Guard your heart. How do you do that, Solomon? Well, you show it with your body parts. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Let perverse lips be far from you. you clean up your heart and it shows first on the tongue. There's a direct line. There's a direct superhighway from the mouth to the tongue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And Solomon says the same thing over and over and over in the book of Proverbs. What is in your heart? If you're wondering what's in someone's heart, just listen to what comes out of their mouth. Now, yes, there are, it is possible for someone to simply know something by rote, know all the right answers. You ask them something and they give you the right answer and you say, yeah, that came from your brain, but I don't think you have that in your heart. 
because I saw not only your lips, but also other body parts. The law commands the eyes. Let your eyes look straight ahead. And Solomon uses the metaphor of the straight path to describe the other parts of the body obeying the law. That's why he says, let your look straight ahead. Don't turn right. Don't turn left. Don't go off the track described by the law of God. Follow the path of life, which is the path of obedience, which is the path described in the Ten Commandments. External compliance is not enough. External compliance is required. Don't commit adultery certainly is a pelvic command, as the detractors of the church say. If the church would just get off the pelvic issues, it would be much more popular. Well, no. The law does describe what to do and what not to do with your body, including your sexual organs. That external command is valid. It's true. It command requires more than that, but never less than that. There is no, well, my heart isn't committing adultery, so it doesn't matter what my body does. No, the rigor of the law, the perfection of the law, means that it commands the heart as well as the eyes and the feet and the hands and every other part of the body. The commands not only command the heart and the body, they also command society. The law is perfect in that it describes what is right and wrong for states as well as individuals. The, the governor, the governing authority, Romans 13, 4, he is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Right? The state has an idea of what's good and what's evil, and that idea has to correspond to what the Word of God says. What's wrong for an individual is wrong for a state. It gets complicated at the borders. Sure, there are tough issues. But across the board, can we say it is right for the state to lie, murder, commit adultery, even though it's wrong for the individual? No. It's wrong for the individual is wrong for the state. So... We won't talk that much about how the commandments apply to states. That's a difficult question in some ways. But the commandments do command society. Love your neighbor as yourself is not just for the individual. It is for all of us to practice together. So the commandments command the heart, they command the body, they command society. And really five rules describe just how they do that. Some of these rules are very obvious and straightforward. The first is that positive includes negative. Eight of the commandments are phrased negatively. Thou shalt not. Two of the commandments, the fourth and fifth, are phrased positively. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Now, if you think about the commandments very much, you have to recognize that the positive includes the negative and vice versa. That is, the command, remember the Sabbath day, 
has to logically include the negative, do not forget the Sabbath day. The command to remember the Sabbath day, you can't say, I'm remembering the Sabbath day while you are breaking the Sabbath day. If you are doing the thing forbidden, then you are failing to do the thing required. So with the Korban tradition, Jesus rebuked the people of his day because they didn't honor their father and mother. A positive command, they were setting aside money that should have gone to take care of their parents, putting it into some kind of delayed charitable account, such that they could say, I got this. Mom and dad, the money that I would have given to you is given to God instead. And there's just, there's nothing, I can't do anything. I can't withdraw it till I'm 66 and a half or whatever the rule was. And so it's too bad. You're on your own without me. And Jesus said, you are breaking the fifth commandment. You are dishonoring your father and mother in the name of this tradition called Korban, giving something to God. So, the positive includes the negative. Honor your father and mother means don't dishonor them. And the negative implies the positive. Have no other gods implies positively that we must have the Lord for our God. Don't make images for worship implies positively that we must worship God according to the way he has commanded us to worship. Don't take God's name in vain implies positively that we must use God's name rightly, and so on. Negative implies positive, positive implies negative. The commandments are double-sided. Also, each commandment mentions the worst sin of that kind. So the commandment, we interpret each commandment as Jesus did on the adultery and murder commands, saying, all right, the sin named in the commandment refers not just to the named sin, but to that entire class of sins. The sin named in the commandment is the worst, most egregious member of that class. And therefore, Though the commandment doesn't just forbid the worst sin of that class, it forbids all sins of that class. Thus, there are many sins against life, but murder is the worst of them. There are many sins against truth, but lying under oath is the worst of them. There are many sins against sexual integrity, but adultery is the worst of them. Right When you see that adultery is forbidden... That is not God's way of saying singles have at it. He's not saying adultery is wrong, but fornication is okay. If you're not married, you can't commit adultery. No, the commandment mentions the worst sin of that kind. Which, by the way, the LGBT lobby has a point here. Insofar as we have gotten away from the biblical message that adultery is the worst sexual sin and replaced it with the idea that homosexuality is the worst sexual sin, we have been unfaithful to what we confess about God's teaching. They have justly rebuked us. You guys would give more attention to adultery and to creating good marriages in the church 
Maybe you wouldn't be such enemies to us. Well, the Lord told us that long ago at Mount Sinai. The worst kind of this sin is heterosexual adultery. So, insofar as we have not communicated that, we need to apologize to the LGBT lobby because the commandment forbids the worst sin of each kind, but it also forbids all sins of that kind by mentioning the worst one. Finally, each commandment forbids not only the sin and the class of sins, it forbids the occasion of that sin, which is what Jesus was getting at when he said, agree with your adversary, make peace with him, don't let the relationship degrade to the point where you're ready to kill each other. That's a violation of the command to preserve life. So the commandment forbids not only the sin, but the occasion of the sin. You cannot, in other words, keep the Tenth Commandment against coveting by going out and subscribing to every catalog that contains the kinds of things you like. If I get catalogs of books from every publisher out there, and I spend hours poring over these things, I am indulging in the opportunity to covet. For some of you, it might be gun shows or cooking magazines, or the list goes on and on, or toy catalogs. The commandment in forbidding the sin also forbids the steps that lead toward that sin. So that's why Jesus said, don't look lustfully. That leads to adultery. Don't get into fights and call people harsh names. That leads to murder. And so it is with all of the sins. Don't get in the habit of using minced oaths. That leads to taking God's name in vain. And don't get in the habit of keeping around things that you consider to be almost divine, something that is very, very close to supplying all your needs. A bank account, for instance, or your favorite toy. This boat just helps me feel better. This recipe just helps me feel better. You're taking steps towards having an idol if you do that. So the law is perfect, and its perfection is seen in these five rules positive and negative, worst sin of that kind, all sins of that kind, and all occasions of that sin. So the law is rigorous. The law commands the whole person. The law commands the whole situation as well. Psalm 19.7, I've already quoted it. The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. God's law is perfect and perfectly huge. Yes, it fits on half a page, but it covers every possible ethical situation in two senses. Not only is it ethical, it is also religious. The law is ethical. First of all, it tells us what is right and wrong in any given situation. Everything it commands is right. Everything it forbids is wrong. And nothing is outside its territory. People have come up with 
silly examples. I know I would let myself be very, very bothered once by the idea of you go into the restaurant and they have the tub of forks there. And the law of God commands me to choose a particular fork. And if I get it wrong, then I've sinned. And I worked myself up to the point where I was actually crying about this. And my mentor, Ryan McGraw, a pastor in California, kind of knocked some sense into me and said, no, the law of God commands you to take a fork in that situation. Not which fork to take, but that in, in order to fulfill the purpose you conceived of going to the restaurant and eating a civilized meal, take a fork. Don't go without the fork. So different philosophers and uh, aestheticians or ethicists rather have tried to discover where does the law end? What is a good example of a perfectly non-moral action? What about scratching myself? Something like that. An involuntary movement. I twitch my foot a little bit. Is that right or wrong? And the answer that has been come up with that I think is the right answer is all specifically human actions, anything that engages your person is at the end of the day either right or wrong. There are animal actions or vegetative actions that we take that are just a movement of the body or something like that. Those are not necessarily right or wrong because they are performed not by the person in your totality as a person, but simply by your body. And so, is it right or wrong to grow my toenails? Well, at the end of the day, I don't choose to grow my toenails. They grow. It's not right or wrong in a moral sense, any more than it's right or wrong for the pulpit to stand here or to fall over by the wind or something. If the pulpit falls over, it has not committed a sin. It's an inanimate object that is not bound by the law in the same sense that persons are. The law, at the end of the day, describes to us, tells us, that everything we do as human persons is either right or wrong. That is, there's no domain above the law. Some have proposed a domain above the law. The councils, they call it. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this. The evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. You don't have to do these. They're not required by the law, but they make the obedience of the law and the path to heaven quicker, shorter, and easier. In one sense, they're like the difference between the Model T and the wind tunnel-tested modern car that you drive now. Both, both will get you to the same destination, but... It's as if the councils are wind tunnel tested and they really drastically reduce the resistance to obeying the law. If you swear a vow of poverty, if you swear a vow to never be married, and if you swear a vow to always obey unquestioningly your ecclesiastical superior. And these, at least in some formulations, become extra laws above the law. An ethical domain above the law where you can go above and beyond the demands of Christ. And that simply doesn't work. If it's right, 
then it's right for everyone. If it's wrong, it's wrong for everyone. Yes, there are specific callings and stuff appropriate to certain individuals. I am not cut out to be a machinist. I don't have the attention to detail. Others of us would say, I am not cut out to be a Formula One driver. I don't have the tolerance for fear. And, and so it goes. But as far as the counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience, uh, I suppose one could study whether they actually make it easier to obey the law, but they are not things required in the law. And they don't work out to a domain above the law. Same with the idea that certain actions are below the law. The law doesn't care, for instance, a lot of people functionally believe this, how I entertain myself. There is no right and wrong when it comes to my music playlists and the contents of my streaming library and the books that I read. If they're fun and entertaining and I like them, you can't tell me that it's wrong to watch that, listen to that, play that, read that. Again, this proposition of a domain below the law ignores the fact that the law of the Lord is perfect and that it describes everything we do is, maybe your dog watches TV, but is creating books and movies a specifically human action? Is watching them a specifically human action? It obviously is. And the law tells us, yes, you can commit adultery watching that show, or you can at least look with lust. Yes, you can be taught to worship other gods by listening to that song. Yes, you can be taught to love. You can let your heart out of the cage and train it to do evil or let it indulge in evil by playing that game or reading that book. The law of the Lord is perfect, and that means there's no supra-ethical or sub-ethical domain. But not only is the law perfect in telling us how to live in this world, the law is also perfect in its religious component. The ethical describes our behavior here and now, but the religious connects us to what's beyond this world, to God, and the law does that as well. It is religious in that it makes us like God. We are, in other words, not just moral beings, we are spiritual beings, too. All of us know people who are upright and moral and who seemingly don't have a spiritual dimension in their life, who will say, I don't need the religious side of the law. I don't need it to connect me to anything beyond myself. And of course, the atheists in our world, many of them are very deeply moral people and have argued that it's not only possible to be good without God, but that in fact the ethical dimension of the law should swallow up the religious dimension. And yes, we can know what's right and wrong without reference to God. And we can enforce what's right and wrong without reference to God. Many Christians have gone down this same path and tried to collapse the whole law into the ethical domain and said, at the end of the day... Christianity is about being good. I try to do the right thing. I have a rigorous ethical code and I do my best to live up to it. 
And that is the be-all, end-all of life. That is my faith. Other Christians, of course, go down the opposite track, and they attempt, attempt to collapse the ethical into the religious and say, no, there is no law. The Christian is free in Christ. Do what comes natural. You're saved by grace. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart. And as long as you're walking in the Spirit, you can do anything. The Christian is free from the law. Right. Effectively, what are they saying? There is no ethical domain in human life. Right and wrong don't exist anymore. And simply walking with the Spirit, doing what the Spirit tells you at each moment. <coughs> and that is irrelevant to what the Ten Commandments say. And these ethicists are perhaps more popular in our, in our Christian circles today. What do we say? We respond, no, the law, like the human person, is both ethical and religious. The law tells us what to do, and the law also connects us to God, and those two are not identical. They are closely related. They feed each other, but they are not one and the same thing. The law connects us to God. It's religious. And in fact, the law is specifically Trinitarian. It comes from the Spirit. It describes Christ. It leads to the Father. Paul tells us, David tells us in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Paul tells us in Romans 7, which we read last week, the law is spiritual. What does it mean that the law is spiritual? Well, at least part of what it means is what we just said, that the law is not merely ethical, but also religious. It addresses not just the moral side of the human condition, but also our need to be connected to God. But further, the fact that the law is spiritual, when Paul uses this adjective spiritual, he doesn't mean spirited or zealous, something bouncy. He means from the Holy Spirit. When you are a spiritual person, as Paul describes it, you are someone empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And for the law to be spiritual means that it is given by God. Moses, or given specifically by the Spirit. Moses already said that. We looked at this text a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no, we didn't. It's a different one. But we, Exodus 31, when God had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now, Jesus spoke about the finger of God. In Luke, he says this, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But in Matthew, he says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The way Jesus speaks tells us that the Spirit of God can also be referred to as the finger of God. The Holy Spirit personally wrote down the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul means when he says that the law is spiritual. The law is sourced from the Holy Spirit. He wrote it down for us. The Spirit loves the law. Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
That's the psalmist talking under the inspiration of the Spirit. The Spirit didn't write it grudgingly. I don't know how I feel about this law. No, he loves the law and he gives the law to us. The law finally is motivated by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. Love is the fulfilling of the law. How do we keep the law, which is spiritual? We do it by the power of the same Holy Spirit who gave us the law in the first place. In, uh, in political terms, we like to talk about unfunded mandates. This new piece of legislation or this new regulation will require such and such amount of work. It doesn't give any funding for the purpose of getting that work done. There are no unfunded mandates in the Bible. Everything the Spirit tells you to do, he says that he will be there with you, giving you the strength to do it. Right? He will pay for, he will energize, he will help you perform every last thing that he tells you to do. So the law is spiritual The law is also the law of Christ. Paul uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, To those who are under the law, I became as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law of Christ. So Paul is under the law of Christ. That is, the law is not just from the Spirit, the law is also from Christ. John 1, the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, if you listen to that verse, you say, aha! Moses gave law. Jesus gave grace and truth. But if that that opposition is absolute, then what does that mean? Moses gave falsehood. Moses gave law, Moses gave falsehood. That's not what Jesus is saying, not what John is saying. Rather, Moses too gave grace and truth. And therefore, Jesus too gives law. The contrast is relative. Christ is a lawgiver, just as Moses gave truth and grace. In fact, John tells us later that Jesus specifically calls himself a lawgiver. A new commandment I give you, love one another. That commandment presupposes that we know what love means. Love is described, as we saw last week, right here in Exodus 20. Love one another. How do I do that, Lord? Have no other gods before me. Don't make graven images. Keep my name. Keep my day. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. That's how we love one another. That's how we keep the new commandment from Christ the lawgiver. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man. And that man too is Christ. David's son who shall be blessed. The law of Christ not only because he gave it, but also the law of Christ because he loves it. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is blessed precisely because 
he delights in the law of Christ. In other words, it's his law not only because he thought of it, but also because he keeps it. Too many legislators out there who think of laws, write them down, get them passed, and don't keep them. Prime Minister of England has been in hot water recently for a particularly notorious example of this. Passing a law requiring no more than two people to ever meet at one time and then having ten people over. Jesus will never do that. He doesn't come up with a law and then fail to keep it. He thinks of the law and then he delights in and obeys that law. Finally, the law describes him. The law, as I said, is a portrait of our Father. The law is also a portrait of our Savior. John says that negatively. We know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Positively, then, in him there is all righteousness. In him there is all obedience to the law. He is the perfect one described perfectly by the Ten Commandments. The one who never worshipped an idol, who never made a graven image, who never took God's name in vain. The one who never swore falsely or coveted or cheated or stole or looked with lust. That is our Savior. The Ten Commandments describe his character perfectly. So finally, the greatest thing about the law, we could say even greater perhaps than the truth that it is from the Spirit and that it delights the Son, is that it leads us to the Father. And that's in Proverbs 6. My son, so this is the Father speaking, and what does he say to us about the law? My son, keep your father's command. Keep the law that comes to you from your father. And do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. How do you find life? You find life by listening to the law and keeping the law that leads to life with the Father. The way of life is not the way of life without the Father. The way of life on your own. It's the way of life with the one who calls you son and says, keep my law. The law is perfect. It's rigorous. It covers the whole person, the whole human condition, both ethical and religious. And it describes the character of the triune God. It's a picture of our Savior. It's a dictate of his spirit. And it is the way to life with his Father. So if you love Christ, listen to the law. If you're a spirit-filled believer, listen to the law. If you're a child of God the Father, listen to the law. That's why we should keep it. That's how we should interpret it. The commands are from the Spirit and the Son. The Spirit and the Son love these commands. 
And when we love and obey them, we'll look like Christ and like him, we'll be in the bosom of the Father. Let's pray. Father, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Make us to delight in the law of God, in the inner man. Help us to put to death that other law that wars against our mind and brings us captive to the law of sin and death. We thank you, Father, that in our conversion, your spirit has written afresh your law on our hearts, that he has retraced what was already there by creation. And he has graven in our very being the things that we need to do to be like you. We thank you, Father, for putting your law in our hearts and writing it on our minds so that we can know you, so that we can be conformed to the image of your Son. Thank you for writing these commandments with the finger of God, not only on tablets of stone, but on tablets of fleshy hearts. Help us this week to love your law, to keep your law, to delight in your law, to interpret your law rightly. Don't let our feet turn aside to evil. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our risen Lord Jesus. Amen.